Hello there. Welcome to Between the Lines. Tom Switzer from RN here. Today, a path-breaking insight into World War II POW camps. Now, the conventional wisdom says that the Japanese Empire systematically mistreated Allied prisoners. Remember, more Australians died in captivity than were killed in combat. Today, though, we'll hear a different view. Author Sarah Kovner on the detention in the Pacific theatre that explains why so many suffered. Plus, a wise man of US foreign policy, Brent Scowcroft, who died recently at age 95. When you destabilize a country, even a bad one, the tendency is not for the middle class, the moderates, the people who don't speak out, who just want to be left alone and lead a decent life. They're not the ones who usually come to the top. It's the ones who are best organized, the meanest, uh, and the most ruthless. That's Brent Scowcroft on the perils of regime change. Stay with us for my tribute to the former two-time US National Security Advisor. But first, Lebanon. Well, earlier this month, a deadly blast in Beirut killed more than 170 people, injured thousands, and left 300,000 homeless, and a vast landscape of destruction. Now, Lebanon was already in extremely bad shape before this blast. Exacerbated by the COVID crisis, the chronic corruption and dysfunction that had defined Lebanese politics for decades, well, all that had brought the economy to ruin. Many people have lost their life savings and investments. No wonder widespread protests recently led to the resignation of the Lebanese Prime Minister and his cabinet. So to put all this in a broader historical context, let's welcome back to the program Joshua Landis. He heads the Middle East program at the University of Oklahoma. Josh, welcome back to Between the Lines. It's a pleasure being with you, Tom. Now, Lebanon was once a model for the Middle East. Beirut was dubbed the Paris of the East. Now, today, Lebanon looks more like Syria or Iraq. How did this happen? Well, it happened because Lebanon is an extremely divided country. It, like Iraq and Syria, there are Shiites and Sunnis dividing the Muslim side, but there's also about 33% of the population are Christians, both Maronite there and, and Greek Orthodox. So you have the same religious divisions in Lebanon that you do in Syria and Iraq. But in fact, you have more. And that's one reason why Lebanon fell into such a bloody civil war from 1975 to 90, which was patched up most recently. And they've been running uh, what turns out to be a real Ponzi scheme through the central bank in which they shored up the Lebanese pound by borrowing gobs of money, billions upon billions of dollars, and um, and supporting the exchange rate. But it turned out that that uh, was a Ponzi scheme because tons of Lebanese in Australia, the United States, Europe, were sending their dollars to Lebanon to be in these dollar-denominated accounts mm -hmm. that were getting interest rates as high as 12%, 13%. So everybody wanted that kind of interest rate, but it turned out to be a Ponzi scheme and it just collapsed a few months ago, which was sparked these terrible demonstrations and instability because the country is now impoverished. Inflation has gone through the roof and people are discovering that they don't have any money and it's, it's um, lit tensions between the different sectarian groups. 
And of course, as I mentioned in my introduction, many people in Lebanon, they've lost their life savings and investments. Too few people realise that it goes back to the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War I. This is when France and Britain, what do they do? They essentially created three great minority ruled regimes in the Middle East. Tell us more. Yes, they did. And, and Lebanon was carved out by France, which got... Uh, both Syria and Lebanon from the League of Nations after World War One, The League of Nations uh, conceded this to France to really rule over them as colonies, but they are called mandates. And S France carved out Lebanon as an independent country and made the borders such that they were as big as they possibly could maintaining a Christian majority so that the government would be dominated by Christians at the center, ruling over Shiites, Druze, uh, a bunch of Sunni Muslims, none of whom would be able to compete, in theory, with the Christians. And this allowed for a very French-friendly country on the Mediterranean that France thought would serve it well. The problem is that uh, within years the demographics began to change and Muslims became the crushing majority. And this led to the civil war in 1975. And ever since then, the various religious groups have been squabbling over political power. And uh, today, 50% of all parliament uh, members have to be Christians by this national pact, even though Christians are probably only a third the population, which underlines how um, you know precarious the entire political system is. And of course, in Iraq, following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire with the British mandate, the Sunni minority pretty much ran the show from the time of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire right through to the uh, downfall of Saddam Hussein. And in Syria, it was the Alawite minority that ran the show. And of course, um, they faced stiff resistance from the Sunni majority during the recent civil war, correct? You're absolutely right. And this, this was a pattern throughout the northern Middle East where the colonial powers, whether it was Britain or it was France, would establish a minority in power, give them the lion's share of power, and that helped them to rule by divide and conquer. But it left a terrible legacy that the Middle East is suffering from today because the Alawites, this religious minority that's 12% of the country, ruled Syria and Today, the uprising was an attempt by the Sunni majority to overthrow that minority that's clinging to power. In Syria, Saddam Hussein is Sunni, 20% of the country were Sunnis, and the Shiite majority and Kurds rose up to try to get rid of Saddam Hussein, leading to very bloody civil war, ethnic war. And, uh, and that's, that's one of the major causes for instability throughout uh, the region is this terrible fight between these different religious groups. And with Lebanon, of course, the French mandate, you had Lebanon, they had French schools and French speakers that survived to this day. And as it happens, September 1, that's just in a few weeks' time, that marks the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Greater Lebanon and the beginning of French rule. My guest is Professor Joshua Landis. He heads the Middle East program at the University of Oklahoma. We've been talking about Lebanon in the post-Ottoman Empire era. Uh, Josh, let's move from history to the present. The, the French president, Emmanuel Macron, he recently paid a visit to the explosion-ravaged Beirut and he declared, quote, France will never let Lebanon go. The heart of the French people still beats to the pulse of Beirut. 
Uh, Josh Landis, uh, what did Macron mean here? Well, you know, he was the first person to go to Beirut at the end of this, this after this terrible explosion that killed so many people and devastated much of downtown Beirut around the port. So Lebanese were... Um, they were looking for help, and and he reached out, and he cared about Lebanon. So that that was very important. Um, there's also a, a big hunk of Lebanese, particularly the Christians, and the Maronite Christians, especially who speak French at home, and uh, look to France as as still as a sort of mother figure for Lebanon. Now, there are many other Lebanese that resent France and see it as a colonial power that's intervening. Mm. So the, his legacy is a bit, is a bit uh, complicated. But at this moment of devastation, Lebanon was looking to Europe and to the West to come in and try to help it, both with money and with aid. And because the currency had collapsed, they were hoping for much bigger uh, aid. And, and Macron was trying to capitalize on that. He did even say um, that he would wanted to help Lebanon come up with a new national pact. That's the constitution that France mm -hmm. gave, in a sense, or hammered out for Lebanon forty three. He wanted to redo the constitution, so it did have <laughs> it did have this undercurrent of colonialism. Yes, too. mind you, mind you, according to the London Times, Josh uh, France's economic influence in Lebanon is limited. Only the seventh biggest exporter to Lebanon and the eighteenth biggest importer of Lebanese goods. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, France is really, uh, other than the cultural question, France has become a small-time player in both Syria and Lebanon today. Okay, now the protesters in Beirut, the, since the devastating explosion, they're focused primarily on Hezbollah. This is the powerful Iranian-backed Shia political party. That's the militia that had in recent years uh, become nearly an untouchable force in Lebanon. And uh, just this week, we heard the news from the UN-backed court that found a member of Hezbollah guilty of involvement in the assassination of the former Lebanese prime minister, potentially a future prime minister. This was in 2005, Rafik Harari. Tell us more about the Lebanese backlash against Hezbollah in the wake of this explosion. Joshua Landers. Well, in the last 10 years, you're absolutely right. Hezbollah has become the dominant military power. In Lebanon, Hezbollah, as we remember, is, represents uh, many of the Shiites of Lebanon, about a third of the population, and has very strong relations with Iran. It gets arms from Iran, it gets monetary help from Iran, and so it has become a really a state within a state. And for a long time, that military power was focused on Israel, because Israel occupied southern Lebanon until 2000, after which it left. But today... Hezbollah has really converted more and more into a political party, and it's a dominant factor in the government. Um, the most recent government, all the members were allies of Hezbollah. So um, th this is this explosion, the collapse of the currency. Many people are turning to Hezbollah and saying, you have to fix this. This is your fault. Now, some of it is Hezbollah's fault. But the big Ponzi scheme that was run, not so much. Uh, that was the, that was laid out by the Hariri government and by allies of Hariri, the central bank, Salame. And so it's, it, the trouble is, is it's awakening all of these sectarian splits that were paved over after the Civil War but are now coming back to the light of day.
Now, you mentioned that Hezbollah is like a state within a state. What's likely to happen to Lebanon? I mean, can it remain, like Iraq and Syria, by the way, can they remain viable nation states? Or do you see a time when all those different ethnic groups, the Christians, Sunnis, Shia, Alawite, all that, they identify more with themselves than as distinct nation states? You know, that's the perennial question in Lebanon and, and, and a number of the political leaders during the civil war recommended that there be a, a Christian state or a, uh, that the Lebanon be broken up. It didn't happen because it's a small country. People live cheek by jowl. It's very difficult to do that and keep Lebanon viable. The Lebanese have to live together. Um, how that is going to be transformed in the future with this very sectarian system where nothing can be done in the country without uh, dividing up every new position in the government and the money flow it along sectarian lines, it reproduces itself. So it's very difficult to transition from a society where people identify more with a religious community to identifying more as a nation. And that's the difficulty because it was built by the colonial powers on this sectarian system, it's very hard to, to get rid of it and to overcome it. And that's the, that's the real challenge for Lebanese in this time of revolution, of how can they do that? And the West is divided on that. France said, when Macron left, he said, we need a, a government of national unity, meaning Hezbollah is going to still play a role in the government. The United States has said that they're going to put sanctions on any politician that continues to deal with Hezbollah. They haven't done it yet, but these are two very different formulas for trying to solve this Lebanese problem, and they're at loggerheads. Joshua, always great to have you on the program. Thanks so much. Pleasure talking with you, Tom. Joshua Landers, he heads the Middle East program at the University of Oklahoma. You're listening to Between the Lines with Tom Switzer, making sense of Australia's place in the world. Now, in Australia, one of the most enduring and emotive memories of the Second World War is the experience of Australians taken prisoner by the Japanese. Changi, the Thai, Burma Railway, Kokoda. Now, just saying those words brings up a strong association with systematic abuse, mistreatment and torture at the hands of Japan's Imperial Army. But what if our memories are not all there is to the story? Sarah Kovner is a senior research scholar in the Arnold Saltzman Institute of Peace and War, War and Peace Studies and an adjunct professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University. Her new book is called Prisoners of the Empire, POWs and their Captors in the Pacific. And she joins me from New York. Sarah, welcome to Between the Lines. It's great to be with you. Now, this is a very fraught topic to write on. Uh, there are some very powerful national memories around prisoners of war, both here in Australia and in the US. Of course, for Australians, it's an essential part of our collective memory of the war because more Aussies died in Japanese POW camps than from any other cause during the war. Are you arguing that history is wrong? I would say that history is complicated. It's true that Australians underwent awful traumatic experiences. I would never deny that. But until now, almost no one has asked why. And that's what's wrong with the way this history has been told. We assume everyone underwent the same experience everywhere. And it's not what I found in my research. And to answer why specific abuses occurred in specific places, we have to dig deeper and go back to the earlier history of how Japanese treated POWs. 
Well, talking about the earlier history, I think about the the Russians during the 1905 war. Japan defeated Russia in this war, and uh, the victory shocked the Western world and granted Japan entry into the club of powerful nations. Um, during the war, uh, 80,000 Russians were taken prisoner by the Japanese. How were they treated? The Japanese treated Russian POWs far better than the Russians treated the some 2,000 Japanese POWs. Mm. Some received servants, some took trips to hot springs. The Japanese taught illiterate Russian POWs how to read. We know what happened because foreign volunteers who worked in Japanese hospitals, and they reported on what they saw. That's interesting. And then there was a shift from the treatment of Russian prisoners to the treatment of uh, POWs during World War II. How do you account for that shift? That's true. During the earlier part of the 20th century, Japan sought to follow international law to demonstrate the extent to which they were a civilized and cultured country. But a faction of the imperial army gained power. They wanted domestic revolution and military expansion in Manchuria. In the 1930s, they attempted four coups and carried out four high-level political assassinations. And then in 1933, Japan announced it was leaving the League of Nations and began to care much less about oppressing the West. Well, that is intriguing. Now, as you point out in the book, in the first five months of the war alone, Japan took 140,000 allied servicemen, 130,000 civilian prisoners. Now, this was from a dozen countries. What was the planning behind taking the prisoners? I mean, was there a system? The Japanese who planned the war simply didn't care about POWs. They weren't a priority. There was no protocol, no manual, and no one truly in charge of caring for POWs. Field commanders never expected so many Allied soldiers to surrender so quickly. They were totally unprepared. So in 1941, the Japanese set up the Prisoner of War Information Bureau to create IDs, lists of POWs, and transmit it to the International Committee for the Red Cross. And soon after, the Prisoner of War Management Office was set up to run logistics. This, this same person was supposed to be in charge of both agencies, but he wasn't in the chain of command, didn't have command authority, and had few personnel. He was merely an advisor. And the guards taking care of the POWs were poorly trained. The camp commandants were near or past retirement ages. Guard units were dumping ground for those unfit for frontline duty. Colonial Korean guards were civilian employees. They probably never encountered a foreigner, couldn't understand them, and didn't know how to deal with them. Hmm. Okay, but let's get this right, though. Japan had signed up to the Geneva Convention, so on an official level, at least, there was a conception of how prisoners of war ought to be treated. I mean, why didn't that message get through? Yeah, you're correct. Japan is signatory, or at the time was signatory to what we think of as the first two conventions, the not the third. And they weren't the only ones not to sign it. They even agreed to follow the mutatis mutandis, depending on circumstances. But even the few officers who knew about the Geneva Conventions lacked the capacity to abide by them. Imperial planners never thought through what resources the empire needed to expand. And this created a series of dilemmas for a military unprepared to provide adequate logistics or labor. And this meant the experience differed dramatically from camp to camp. Sarah Kovner is my guest, and she's the author of Prisoners of the Empire, POWs and Their Captors in the Pacific. Uh, Sarah, historians have sometimes explained the mistreatment of prisoners of war as being a, a natural extension of the Japanese warrior code. This is Bushido. Tell us more. Well, if it was really about Bushido, why were civilians interned with POWs also mistreated? And why did mm -hmm. conditions vary so much from camp to camp? Bushido was a norm. The Japanese Imperial Army wouldn't have had to threaten punishment if soldiers really believed it. And if 
The Bushido code required abusing POWs. Why did the Japanese court martial cards for how they treated POWs? Yeah, it's interesting because historians really haven't raised those kind of questions in the past, have they? Um, I'm not that I, not to my knowledge. Yeah. Now you argue in the book that the mistreatment of Japanese people in in America, this is the internment over was it 100,000 Japanese civilians in California. That was very big news in Japan. Now, did that play into the way the Japanese treated allied POWs? So, yeah, this is true in the U.S. And Japanese civilians were also interned in Canada, Latin America, Europe. And it was a big deal, according to diplomatic documents. The U.S. State Department noticed it was tit for tat. Mistreatment of internees, like shooting any who tried mm. to escape, led to mistreatment of allied POWs. Tokyo and Washington continued to communicate with each other during the war. But these notes failed, since Japan was very concerned about the treatment of internees and cared little for its POWs. For the U.S., it was the opposite. Okay. Now, in your book, you also argue about face slapping, um, the forced marches. Um, a lot of these things seemed unusually cruel to allied POWs. They were not unusual, these are your words, they were not unusual in the Imperial Japanese Army. Are you arguing, Sarah, there are a, a, a different cultural perceptions of, of what constitutes cruelty? Well, I think everyone now would agree that some things are indisputably cruel. But mm. at that time, the Japanese didn't always understand them as being cruel. And some things that were cruel were just part of Japanese Imperial Army culture. Take base slapping. This was a matter of course in the Japanese Imperial Army. But evidence indicates that the that Japanese soldiers preferred what was called private sanctions to formal sanction. Part of what the, made the POW experience traumatic for Australians, Americans, even when conditions were more tolerable, was that they were being held captive by men they considered their inferiors. So was racism a factor there, Sarah? Yeah, I think so. A wartime accounts on both sides show the enemy as being members of an inferior race, if not another species. They had little experience with each other and didn't speak each other's languages. And, um, you know, and as many as the Japanese and Koreans hadn't encountered a non-Japanese speaking foreigner and thought they were being defiant when they didn't immediately follow orders, many Americans, Dutch, Australians, had never before encountered Asians as anything but quality of subjects. Yes, this program is all about challenging conventional wisdoms or our understanding of the past. So your book really goes a great deal to challenging the accepted wisdom on this subject. And this is such an important issue for Australia, as I mentioned in my introduction, the POW experience, it really is central to our memories and the American memories too of the war. But as you point out, Japan held prisoners from a dozen countries. Most of the prisoners were Asian. I, I think that point rarely gets mentioned. Most of the prisoners were Asian. Question, was there a difference between the treatment of Western and Asian POWs? Yes, you're right. There were allied POWs who included Indians, Filipinos, Chinese, and even Asian Americans. And then there were Asian laborers, the treatment of which was appalling. It isn't something you learn from most accounts of the POW experience, in which the POWs are always white men. But Asian men were often treated even worse, such as the Indians who refused to join the Indian National Army. Now, final question, Sarah. How is the POW story issue talked about in Japan today? It's a great question. It's not talked about so much, as you can see in the recent coverage of the 75th anniversary. It's mm. not surprising that the Japanese war experience focuses on their dead, those who were firebombed or civilians who suffered. And primarily, these stories are local and their stories of victimhood. But let's remember that being a guard was a low-ranking position 
Indeed, many guards were not Japanese, but as I mentioned, Korean or Taiwanese civilian employees. But that's why I got interested in this story, precisely because it's so seldom mentioned in Japan, even while it still looms large in Australian and American memories of the war. Sarah, thanks so much for being on RN today. Thank you. Sarah Kovner, she's from Columbia University in New York, and her new book is called Prisoners of the Empire, POWs and Their Captors in the Pacific. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer on ABC Radio National. Go back three decades, August 1990. At 2am local time on August the 2nd, Iraqi troops crossed the border into Kuwait and its army of just 20,000 men were swept aside in a matter of hours by a force of tanks and infantry battle-hardened by their eight-year war against Iran. Now, it was Brent Scowcroft who took the lead in organising the US-led multinational response. And who's Scowcroft, you might ask? Well, he's the only national security advisor to two US presidents, Gerald Ford in the 70s and George H.W. Bush in the late 80s and early 90s. He died recently at age 95. Now, Scowcroft was one of the most successful US foreign policy figures of the post-World War II era. And according to The Economist, Scowcroft's role in the Gulf War in the early 1990s was his finest hour. But he had his detractors, and after the Gulf War, Scowcroft was criticised for not going to Baghdad to finish the job of bringing down Saddam after the liberation of Kuwait. Now, the critics were not just American neoconservatives, but also of all people, Paul Keating. He's the Australian Prime Minister in September 1994 after the Iraqi dictator defied a post-Gulf War UN resolution. I think that uh, the great pity was we never went after Saddam Hussein in the first place, on the first round. And uh, basically when we had, had him beat, we should have finished him off. However, Scowcroft always made it clear the objective of the mission in 1991 was Kuwait's liberation. Regime change in Baghdad he warned, was always fraught with the danger of unintended consequences in what he said was a bitterly hostile land. Now, that sense of restraint, prudence, that formed Scowcroft's thinking on the eve of the second Iraq war 12 years later, which Keating's successor, John Howard, supported. Toppling Saddam's regime, Scowcroft argued, would be very expensive, it'd have very serious and bloody consequences. Saddam, Scowcroft argued, was power-hungry, a survivor who had little cause to join al-Qaeda. Iraq, he warned, could be contained just like other rogue states. But Bush Jr. dismissed Scowcroft. Scowcroft copped criticism for speaking out against a war prosecuted by his best friend's son, George W. Bush, former colleagues, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and his understudy, Condoleezza Rice. However, his warnings were sadly prescient. The Iraq invasion, as virtually everyone acknowledges now, was an unmitigated disaster. Now, for more on Scowcroft, hear my 2015 interview with his biographer, Bart Sparrow, and read my article in the Australian newspaper this week. Both links are posted on the homepage, abc.net.au slash rn, and follow the prompt to Between the Lines. Well, that's it for another week of Between the Lines here on RN. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next time.